I want to expose what God's promise is, his promise to save us, his people, it's introduced to Abraham. So let's recap for a bit, okay? We've been through, actually some of what we read was in um, chapter 11, but we've been through basically the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's considered, if you're new to this series, the book of Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and scholars consider it, and it is, the book of beginnings. It's an explanation of how the world began and various topics like this. It creates a context for the whole entire Bible and all its themes and sub-themes. So if you really want to understand the whole Bible, you have to understand Genesis. It's very difficult to, to really understand well the concepts of Scripture without knowing the book of Genesis. And we'll see that, hopefully, by the end of the sermon. The book of Genesis insists that there is only one God. That you are not God. That I am not God. That the created things are not God. That he alone is God. That there is one God. There aren't many gods. There isn't a panoply of, of sorts, a, a pantheon of sorts in, in, the, in the heavenlies of Zeus and you know, all the Neptune and all these different Greek and Roman gods, right? There is only one God, Scripture says. It insists on that. It says that every other God is not only not God, but they are fake, they're made up, they're contrived in our own imaginations. Not only is there only one God, but Genesis tells us that this one God is responsible for creating everything in the material universe. It doesn't tell us exactly how he created everything in the material universe, except for the fact that he is the original cause of it all. He is the one that began the process and continues the process. Some people have argued, did he use evolution? Did he not use evolution? That's beyond my pay grade um, to say scientifically. Biblically, I can say that it's a possibility. I know, put your rocks down, okay? I didn't say it definitely is what God did, but, you know, the Christians are angry at me right now. I can see it, right? Um, But all I can say is this. God is the cause of all the created universe, whether a kind, he used a kind of evolution or not is besides the point. The point is that he is the origin of it all. Okay? He's responsible um, for the material universe. The universe is not chance. It's not random. But it's the work of a personal God and an intentional God that gives you purpose and me purpose. You see, it's not just random. And the same God, by the way, doesn't just create everything, but he communicates with us. He has relationship with us. We learned all of this in the first 11 chapters. He has a special relationship with man and woman because they're created in his image. So they, man and woman, humanity, have a special type of place in all of the created order. That God has a, a, a specific and personal purpose for them. Because they're made in his image, and have the distinct privilege of fellowship with God. They have a love relationship with God in a way that nothing else does. Can you imagine that? So that guy that you're sweet on in school, right? Isn't that great? Love. Don't we love to fall in love? It feels so fantastic. But you know that there's a better love? That God, the creator, the maker of all things, created you, formed you in your mother's womb so that he could love you forever? That the reason we fall in love with men or women and want to be married, all this romance stuff, it's all great and we love it and God made it. But the reason for it is so that our hearts can be drawn to him. So that we could see in that story that we have with each other, a story underneath that story that's much better. That God has, God has, a, has a bridegroom for you, a spouse for you, waiting for you in heaven upon faith in Jesus Christ. So that, that puts everything else in perspective, doesn't it? So when we consider, hey, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to settle. I'm going to do anything that I can to be in a human relationship, even, even if it's bad for me. The reason the Christian can say no to that is because we have a better relationship, a better spouse, a hope. In our widget making, we know something better's coming. So we can sacrifice for a little while, right? <clears throat> so Genesis teaches us that God's promise is good. It's good. It's very good. All over Genesis. And he made it, and it was very good. And he created this, and it was very good. And friends, he created you. You're included in that list. It was very good. You're not junk. Humanity, in addition, is meant to enjoy God, fill the earth, and care for God's creatures. And that's kind of what we do today. We fill the earth, we're fruitful, we multiply, and we aim to, to, 
to care for the earth that God has given us. <clears throat> but instead of doing this perfectly under the authority of God in a love relationship with God, we decided, this is, again, this is in Genesis, we decided to leave our maker, to dethrone the Lord, to build our own city and tower, and to make a name for ourselves. So no longer is it God doing this for us, but we've shoved God out and said, okay, now I'm going to have to do this for myself. And every single person in this room, I think, knows the burden of that life. Trying to prove yourself that you matter, that you're important. Impressing your parents with good grades. Impressing dad with athletics. Whatever, I mean, you name it. Being in a marriage with someone that maybe just never seems pleased with you. And you're constantly trying to please them and it never works. You're trying to make a name for yourself. Trying to prove yourself. But someone looms over you. Whose shadow casts over you. And promises you to give you a name. To love you and delight in you. If you simply turn from those things and trust in him. And come to him. This is the message of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 teaches us quite clearly that humanity, that when we're off by ourselves without God, we just cannot make it on our own. We fight, we war, we lie, we cheat, we use. This is what we do. And friends, it's the story of all scripture, not just the early chapters of the Bible, but they are right there. In Adam and Eve, the stories of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the, the population of the earth at the time of Noah, everything was in a state of chaos separate from God. And finally, we saw recently these tower bu um, builders building their own city and tower called Babel, trying to save themselves from the plight that they found themselves in outside of God's presence. Without God, humanity is in confusion and chaos and restless wandering. And you know, I know some of us might be, we might be not familiar with Christianity this morning, but can I just ask you to rephrase that sentence? Isn't it true that our world is in chaos? It is restless. It is confused. And there is all sorts of wandering that never leads anywhere. The Bible offers us an answer why. And the answer why is because we're separate from God and we need him back. We all concoct all these different reasons about why we might be in a state of personal chaos and inner, inner turmoil. It's because of mom and dad or because I lacked this or that or a job or money or love or something like this. But friend, can, can you just see that you're, you're just a hair off? You see, the things that you think you lack they might be genuine, genuine pressures on you. But getting those things isn't the solution. You see, what you're going to find when you get them is that you're still empty. So you've got to move it just a little bit. Look off to the side to what's fuzzy in the peripheral, which is God. Look to him. Let him come and fill you. But as I said, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 shows us that without God, Everything remains fuzzy. And in Genesis 12, everything changes. Genesis 12, we receive hints of God, excuse me, before Genesis 12, we receive hints that God, is, God still loves us, that God's going to do something about it, but we, we don't really know what that looks like yet. He just says basic things, like the seed of Eve is going to crush the serpent's head. Kind of enigmatic, mysterious. What does that even mean? Noah finds favor with God. The, the earth is flooded and Noah is rescued. So there's this saving God in there. There's this picture of a loving God that wants to rescue even guilty sinners. But we don't really see exactly what God's up to until Genesis chapter 12. And that's why I say Genesis 12, chapter 12 is the hinge on the Bible. It's the hinge on which the Bible turns. It's probably one of the most important sections of Scripture that you can understand. It's unpacked, by the way, through up to about Genesis chapter 22. The Lord comes back to Abraham and reaffirms different aspects of the promise that he makes to him. So Genesis chapter 12, there's a promise. There's a promise made. It's written in stone, and it sets the stage for everything that follows. And friends, 
can I invite you to consider that God is speaking this promise to you? That the purpose to your life is so much more than what you thought it was. It's built into this, into these words. So let's begin. What is God promising? What is he promising here more fully in Genesis 12, chapter 12? What is his promise to you? Well, let's begin this. What is, his promise basically is salvation. It's blessing. But first, before we get into that blessing, we see something in particular. God tells Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land will, that I will show you. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. God's blessing, God's promise of blessing, always marks a distinction in our life. Number one, God's blessing comes to you, and what that very basically means is that he changes you. You do not stay the same. Everything changes. God's promise of blessing begins with the command, go, Abraham, from your country, your people, and your father's house. So before God tells Abraham his promise um, that he was going to save Abraham and his offspring, he first is defining what a blessed person looks like. A blessed person is a person that leaves at God's command. Okay? In Genesis, it's clear that sin and separation from God are the source of all sorts of personal and corporate dysfunction. The chaos in your soul, according to Scripture, has very simply to do with the fact that we're separate from God because of sin, because God is holy and cannot look at sin. We chose everything else to worship everything else except Him, so that creates a separation resulting in chaos and dysfunction internally. So here in Genesis chapter 12, God is calling Abraham out of that dysfunction. He's saying, leave it to something else. God's blessing does not come on any of us, or anyone for that matter, without our being aware of it. Does that make sense? We might walk away sometimes with the understanding that, well, you know, God will just bless people even if they don't know it. According to Scripture, God's blessing and salvation does not come like that. It's received with eyes open. Okay? God's gift of salvation includes a conscious awareness that what we are in is a problem. We become aware that we are sinful and that sin is a problem and it separated us from God and it has offended God. We're aware of it now. We know it. But we also know that he will be gracious and rescue us from it. Um, Theologians uh, in the past have called this, they've given a turn to it, conversion. I know that's an ugly word in our society, but throughout church history, this process has been called conversion. It's a turning of sorts. It's a realizing what your real problem is and your need for Jesus Christ and the gospel. The scriptural word for this is repentance. Basically means the same thing. It's visualizing some kind of turning. You thought this, and we're going this way, but now you realize this, and you're going that way. See? So it's clear, it's the clear awakening to the fact that we've sinned against God, And that sin has resulted in God's justice and separation from him. God calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. That's what the text said, if you remember. The Ur of the Chaldeans was a very special place for Abraham. It was more than just a city. It was his religion. It's what he believed. Now, the city itself was a megacity at the time. It would have been like a New York City or Chicago or Los Angeles. It was one of the biggest cities on earth at the time. It had exquisite art, manufacturing, commerce, technology. This is where you would go. What dominated the city was a large Babel-like temple, a ziggurat, dedicated to the moon god Shin. Okay? So this was also a religious place. Church history, excuse me, Jewish history tells us 
that Abraham and his family actually manufactured idols to sell to people who worshipped these idols. So Abraham and his family, for them, Ur was more than just a place. It was what they believed. It was them. It was their identity. It was their savior. Their, their, their God. You see? So God says, Abraham, get up and leave the Ur of the Chaldeans. And friends, when God speaks to us, when the God, remember we talked about in, in the early chapters of Genesis, that the clear message of the Bible is that there is one God. So when, we, when he shows up, he requires that we put everything in our hands down. Because nothing in our hands can save us. No matter what we've tried to prove ourselves to make us right in other people's eyes, when we encounter God for the first time, we recognize that all of our efforts have been vain and that we are desperately in need of his help. So God shows up, and this is what he says, Abraham, leave the Ur of the Chaldeans, your place of identity, leave it. Put it down. What do you hold on to this morning, friends? What do you think proves yourself, proves your worth? you got to put it down. you got to leave the Ur of the Chaldeans. That's what God's call bids us to do. It's not God, you know, you think like, oh, God is like this kind of buzzkill, right? I, I just wanted to have a little fun, these things I enjoy, and he's telling me to leave them. What's his problem? <clears throat> did you know, before I even re- answer that in my notes, <laughs> did you know that the first miracle did, I like, I like this, I've said this before, but Jesus Christ's first miracle was to get a party started. He's not a buzzkill. He's, he's, he's just trying to get, save you from the little teeny party that you think is a little fun to what you're missing at, out, that, that, vac- that vacation at the sea, like C.S. Lewis said. We're so easily pleased with little trinkets of the world. God is trying to save us from that. You see, God is the party starter. He's not the buzzkill. He's the party maker. You see, when we take over the party, people start dying. The police show up, right? That's what happens when we party. But when God parties, it's way better. He, tra- he changes water to wine, man. I mean, come on. <clears throat> That's the God we serve. So God isn't just com- some kind of sadistic buzzkill. That's not what's happening here. He's trying to save us from the burdens of life without him. We think they're fun at first, but then they turn on us and they bite. <clears throat> it's a passing from death to life. That's what God promises. So when we trust in fun or parties, or work, or relationships, all these different things. We trust in a false God. So God says, you got to put it down, and you got to trust me. you got to believe me. You see, you're putting widgets together. But there's something better for you, friend. Okay? <clears throat> these things are soul-crushing. It's their damning lies that keep us separate, separate from the party starter, from God the king, the father, the spouse, the one who can love you better than any man or woman could. So the Bible's clear testimony is that those he pronounces a blessing on, that those same people he calls out, he wakes up, he turns, go to the land of the, leave the Ur of the Chaldeans and go to a place I will show you. You see? To enter into the blessing of God requires an awakening of the hearts. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know him, he was murdered um, by Hitler's Gestapo in World War II. He was a, a Christian man that fled Germany. He was German. He fled Germany because he did not believe in the ideologies of the day. So he fled Germany. I think he went to, to America or England. I forget exactly where. And he was very scholarly, <clears throat> very intelligent, wrote books, brilliant mind, felt convicted that he left Germany, his, com- like, his comrades, that's Russian, but um, <laughs> so he felt convicted that he left. So he decides, I'm going to go back. I'm going to stand with my people. Eventually, he was arrested, imprisoned, and executed. He, um, he, he said this, <clears throat> in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When God calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Oh, that's hard. 
When God calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Abraham, leave. That's mom and dad. That's his religion. That's his economic resource, his business, idol making. Abraham, put it down. Trust me. Put some widgets together for a little while. Believe me. And we all are faced with that, friends, aren't we, as Christians and as non-Christians? Because even as Christians, we've got to believe God when he says that it's better to, to not cheat, to not lie, to not steal, to not marry the wrong person, to not be divorced, right? To endure, to trust. Now, I'm not trying to oversimplify these things. I know that there are exceptions. So please, again, put your rocks down. <laughs> But isn't this true? We have to believe God. When he tells us to do something, it's just not in our nature to do it. Got to believe him. We got to keep putting our widgets together. The Bible's clear testimony is that those God pronounces a blessing on, he also calls them out of what they were formerly in. See? So Abraham had to acknowledge the moon god's a lie and i gotta stop making idols i gotta put down my crutches and i gotta trust him jesus said the same thing he told his disciples leave your nets didn't he say that come and follow me leave your nets you see when god's blessing comes we have to change directions that's how it comes we see We see what we really need. We see what we've been trusting in. We see the emptiness of it. And we realize we have to put it down and we have to go this way. Now we might remain with mom and dad and country and spouse. So we might not actually take a literal journey like Abraham did. But nevertheless, if God calls on you and calls his blessing to you, if he forgives you of your sin and reconciles you to himself, Your direction is changed. It's different. Abraham, leave the Earl of the Chaldeans and go to a place I will show you. Number two, God's blessing, God's salvation aims to restore. We kind of hinted at this already. God is not taking your party away when when he invites you to turn from this and go to him. Right? He's not taking your party away. He's not taking your husband away or your spouse or love. He's not taking any of the, he's not taking kingdoms or cities or all of these things that we sort of delight in. Salvation's aim is to restore. Listen to the promise of God to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. See, all, these are all the things we're after, by the way. Great, what's a great nation? Well, usually what that meant for them, it it meant prosperity, fruitfulness, marriage, family, things like this. I will bless you. It says in Hebrews that that means the forgiveness of sin. So God wipes our conscience clean. Have you ever tried to do that on your own? Good luck. It doesn't work. You know, we climb a thousand mountains and our conscience is still dirty, right? Out damn spot. It doesn't work. We rub and scrub like Shakespeare, right? That's Shakespeare, right? People who know that, that, that aren't, clearly aren't me. Which one is it? Macbeth, right? Doesn't come out. You might think it does. You might try to work it out. You might go to, you can go to church till you're blue in the face, but until someone dies for that sin, that sin remains. So I will bless you. I will make your name great. Imagine, this sounds kind of, like why, this is on a person, Isn't God's name great? Isn't he's the one, like, why do we get all this stuff? But I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So, Abraham, this isn't just a promise for you. This is a promise for other people, too, outside of you. Other nations, other families. That's why I say Genesis 12 is the most important, probably the most important chapter in the whole Bible, because this is where all of us, every nation, is introduced to the fact that there is a blessing waiting for us, too, in God. That this promise is not just for Abraham, it's for you and me. To your seed, 
I will give this land's kingdom. So having had his relationship with God reconciled, Abraham would be what Paul says in Ephesians in the New Testament, Abraham is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He gets it all. He turns his widgets for a year and then gets everything. Amen? And friends, in Christ, that's what you get. That's what we believe. That's what Christianity teaches. God wasn't obliterating the nations. He wasn't wiping them all out. But he's calling out of those nations that rejected him. He's calling people from them, showing his love that remains on them, calling them out and and building a new nation. A blessed nation, a restored city, God's kingdom, God's land, the earth. I was down by the Warren Beach the other day, sitting on a bench, and I was thinking about this, I was meditating on this. All, all throughout the Bible, the Bible says like the, like the temple is where God lived, so to speak. In the Old Testament, there was this tent, and, and God kind of showed up in it in the form of a cloud, and that was his tent. And then it talks about God being like in Eden, the Garden of Eden, that's his place. Well, well, friends, in God's kingdom, this whole earth is his tent. And I was just really delighting in that the other day, sitting on a bench, meditating on that. That God's presence, his intention is for it to be from beginning to end, everywhere, all the time. Isn't that incredible? So God's not obliterating the nations. God is restoring these things. In the New Testament, there's another place in the New Testament Uh, There's a book called Hebrews, and it reads this. By faith, it talks about Abraham here. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, making widgets, right? Like a stranger in a foreign country. Didn't have a house, didn't have lots of stuff. He's putting his widgets together. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For Why did they do this? Why did they sacrifice? Why did they obey God? What did they, why did they sometimes lose materially? Why would they put these shackles on their feet? I, I, I watched a movie when I was um, in high school. It was about uh, philosophical existentialism, atheistic existentialism. I'm not even going to explain that. I'm sorry. But... It, basically, this movie was called Eight and a Half by this guy named Fellini. And this movie portrays this man who believes in God as floating with a chain on his foot. And on the ground, there's this priest holding the chain. (laughs) So you get the image there? Like, you know, religion, what you believe about God, this, this is just preventing freedom. What you got to do is you got to get that chain off you. You got to get rid of that priest, right? And you got to be free. You see, Scripture says, says the exact opposite. We might feel as if, in a sense, we're chained. We can't do whatever we want to do, right? The Bible's clear about that. But Scripture talks about this as awaiting something better. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him to the same promise. Why did he do this? For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That's why. Because a promise was made to Abraham that there's a city coming and a king coming that's way better. That's your inheritance. So yeah, so, you know, I can't have sex with anything that moves, right? Bummer, right? You know, there's rules in this thing, and come on, give me a break. I can't get drunk on the weekends. What's with that? You know, like, but do you realize why it's there? Because those things are in the way of the greater lover, the greater drink. You see? You're cheating yourself. There's something better. There's a better city, a better kingdom. It's there for you. It's waiting for you. Accept it by faith in Christ. God would save some from every nation that separated out of this rebellious Babel. Israel itself 
would not be the blessed nation or people. But by Israel, this blessing would come to all nations. You see that? Genesis chapter 11, God confuses, you remember this at the, the Tower of Babel, God confuses everyone's language. They're without God, they don't believe in him, they're doing their own thing, so God says, this isn't good, i got to confuse their languages, right? So he does. What does God do in Acts chapter 2? When the Spirit comes, when the resurrection of Jesus Christ dies, is resurrected, ascends to heaven, establishes his church. What does he do in Acts chapter 2? He unifies the speech. He deconfuses them. He takes the chaos away. Isn't that fantastic? Do you see what this, what's going on here? Come to Jesus, friends. Take the chaos away. God is able to restore all that was lost in the fall because the greatest blessing is the forgiveness of sin. So not only does he restore everything, how is it that God can do this for us? If the Bible is true and we are sinners separate from God, how can he just say, you're my son now, you're in my family, and here's all my inheritance. Here, it goes to you. How can he do this if we're still separate from him? Well, it's because very simply, David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. You see, God can do this because he pays for our sin for us. He dies for them. Praise God. Number three, God's blessing, his salvation is gracious. Oh, and this is a wonderful word. It's gracious. And it's gracious for two reasons. Number one, God's blessing comes to you, who, people who do not deserve it. We don't deserve it. We're guilty. And he does something for us that we don't deserve. If all the world has fallen, then wouldn't justice require, like in the Noah story, a universal judgment of the whole world? Yet God saves Noah. So to sin against God and to be forgiven by God requires that he, not we, be gracious. Does that make sense? God has to do something for us that we don't deserve or it won't happen. The second thing is that it's unearned, and this makes it even better. Okay, Kind of is implied by the first one, but let me explain to you what this means. It's not only undeserved, but it's unearned. God decides to save us not because we make it up to him, not because we're the fastest runners, not because we're the, the handsomest boy in school, God doesn't make it up to us because we made lots of money or donated lots of money to good causes. You see, that would not be gracious, would it? That would be God returning a favor. We are unable to pay back the debt that we owe, and God does it for us anyway. Oh, amazing grace. In the promise to Abraham, there is a repeated I will. Did you hear that in the promise as we read it? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will give you this land. I think it's interesting that in Isaiah chapter 14, Satan, you guys heard of him? Satan, right? Satan says, when it, before he fell, Satan says, I will, not God, I will rise above the Most High. I will put my throne above the clouds of the heavens. There's this self-serving power that he presumes, but God says to Abraham, I will do these things for you because you're helpless to do them for yourself. That's what grace is. Works says, I can save myself. I can make this right. Grace says that you can't and you need God to do it for you. That's the gospel, friend. The only adequate response to grace because of this has to be faith. The only way that you can receive this isn't by being good, keeping your nose clean. It's by believing the promise of God. It's by trusting that what he said is true. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. 
You see, if Abraham was made, so you made idols, he did all these bad things. If What he's saying is if Abraham was made right with God by his works, then Abraham boasts in who? Abraham. He boasts in the fact that one day he did the right thing. He turned the right knobs and he did everything in the right direction. He was good now. He did it. But it says here, in fact, Abraham was, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. If you tell me that you're going to give me 50 bucks as a gift and then say, but only if you mow my lawn, that's not a gift. That's a wage. I got to work for that. You can say it's a gift all you want, but it's not. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. You see, I, you have to pay me. You're obligated to pay me if I work for you. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. You see, it's believing that God will do what he said he was going to do in spite of what you've done and I have done. Abraham, it says in Genesis 12, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he does the unthinkable. Despite what he had been taught his whole life about the, the, the pantheon of gods and the, the, the purpose of life and all of the, the pressures of family and, and society, Abraham does the unthinkable. He says no to his fathers and yes to the father. He believed God. And so must we, friends. You got to believe God. And believe not just that he's true and that he's real, but believe that you can't save yourself, that you need him to save you for you. So he believes God. He says, you're right, God. I'm in the wrong country. My greatest problem is sin that separates me from you. I need your blessing. I need your forgiveness. And I need a relocation to your city. So he believes God's message, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in his faith is the only thing that we can do. In his faith, faith, as all faith does, he obeys. The only proof of faith is obedience. Obedience doesn't make you right with God, but it proves that you really believed. Does that make sense? If I say I you know, believe that all snakes are poisonous and um, deadly and will kill me, and I just go up to one and I start whipping it around my head like I didn't even say it, I probably don't really believe that unless I want to die. Right? What you believe affects what you do. If it doesn't, you don't believe it. I mean, that's just the reality of it. So works don't save you, but faith, pr faith produces works. Does that make sense? So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Number four, salvation is, is external. It, salvation marks a distinction, provides a restoration, is gracious, and is external. Salvation is outside. If it's gracious, that means you can't do it. That means it's got to come from something else, someone else. So how are we saved? How is this blessing given to us? If we're sinners and we don't deserve it, how do we get it? If salvation is gift, if it's grace not worked but earned, uh, if it's grace and it's not worked for or earned, then it's got to come from someone outside of ourselves. So God, to be sure, is the person it comes from, right? Genesis 12, I will do this for you. I will, right, I will make your name great. I will bless you. I will forgive your sin. But how does a just God forgive sin? How does he just say, oh, it's like you never did it? Like he's got like some kind of eraser in heaven, like pretending as if we're not guilty when we are. If the wages of sin are death, and God has said that, the day you eat this, you will die. The, scripture says when we turn from God in his good pleasure and will, we die. 
How does he just not do that now? Is he schizophrenic? Has he changed his mind? Has he forgotten? Does his word not really mean anything now because he just decided not to enforce a consequence, you see? Salvation is external. Your sin, friends, even though it's forgiven, was paid for. And it did result in death, just not yours. So let's talk about this for a little while. If salvation is a gift, if it's free and not earned, and comes from outside of us, God being the source, gives it to us through a seed. To your offspring, to your seed, it says, I will bless you. So he's not blessing us through Abraham. The promise is fulfilled in Abraham's seed. Galatians in the New Testament chapter 3 says this, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but to your seed, Christ. You see, friends, the reason Abraham could be blessed and the nations of the earth could be blessed was because through Abraham would, would come the better Abraham, would come the sacrifice, the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. The hero isn't Abraham then. It's not you and me. The means by which Abraham would be blessed would come from him but not by him. Okay? Does that make sense? It would, it would come through him but by Jesus Christ. The king is Jesus. The savior is Jesus. The new city is his city. So in Christ Jesus... You are children of God through faith. This is so important. This explains everything. Okay, you've got to get this verse because this explains everything. So in Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed, clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor Gentile nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What's that promise? What's he talking about? This is Galatians, by the way. What's he taught? The promise made to Abraham. You are Abraham's seed if you believe in the seed, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, that would come through Abraham to save you of your sin, to reconcile, restore your relationship to God himself. That's the promise. That's the promise made to Abraham, that God would send a deliverer, a savior, to restore you to your your relationship with God, to put you back in, to plug you in. Isn't that fantastic? And not only that, not only is Christ the external reason why God is... So Christ's death satisfies the justice of God so that he can legally forgive our sin. It was paid for, so we don't have to pay for it again. So God's just, he didn't just say, ah, oh, it's like they never did it. He actually paid for it. So his justice is satisfied. And we get his love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Isn't that fantastic? And we get it for free. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works of righteousness, lest anyone should boast. And finally, this promise is sure. It's assured. What that means is that once you're found in Christ, there's no coming back. Nothing can take it from you. You can't be a sinner again in God's eyes because it's forgiven. And God doesn't change his mind. And the blood of Christ is adequate to cover everything. He didn't forget to pay for one. Right? The blessing is God's gift in Christ's death and resurrection. If that's true, then it's sure. And you have the confident hope and expectation of eternal life, that all of your sins will be forgiven, and that you will be in right relationship with your God in heaven. If, the, if this blessing, of, uh, uh, blessing is God's gift in Christ's death and resurrection, it is sure. That's why I can tell you right now that I know that my sins are forgiven, and that I'll, I will be in Jesus Christ's eternal city. I won't be separated from him. I won't be worm food. 
I'm going to be with him forever. You say, how do you know that? Jesus. Because of Jesus. It wasn't me. I wouldn't know that if I had to continually every day pay for my own debts. It would always depend on me. But because it's, it's put on Christ, because my guilt is put on him, it's gone forever. And I have the hope of eternal life. But Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 said, how do I know this? God, this is great. I mean, you're giving me the keys to the farm, man. You're giving me everything. You're forgiving my sin. But how do I know this? How do I know you're not going to change your mind or if any of this is even real? God, Abraham asked this to God. Did you know that in Genesis 15? This is later on. Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that, I'm, that any of this is going to happen? I'll paraphrase a little. How can I know this? You're promising me a lot. So the Lord said to him, <laughs> he, says, he doesn't say Abraham, come on, just trust me. Right? What if like the, you know, the widget boss guy said, I'm going to give you $10 million at the end. And he said, well, how do I know you're going to give me that? Well, just, just trust me. Go to work. Right? So, so we, we'd kind of be like, oh, gosh, I mean, maybe he'll be good on his word, maybe he won't. How do I know it? So Abraham's going through this problem right now. Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll, I'll gain possession of this and these blessings that you've promised me will actually happen? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. It's about to get bloody. Okay? Okay. What's all this for? So the Lord said, right, so Abraham brought all these things to him. He cut them in two, and he arranged the halves opposite each other. He makes like this, this aisle of severed animals. Disgusting. Right, so this, this like lane to kind of walk down, so to speak, a road. And on each side of the road is a half of these animals. What the heck is going on here? So Abraham does this, and as the sun was setting, Abraham is put into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness comes over him. So now he's asleep. And in verse 17, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appears. This is God. And God passes through the pieces while Abraham is asleep on the side. And on that day, it says, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. I'm going to do this. You know what this means? I'm just going to cut to the quick here. The, the reason Abraham can trust God's word in this is because God is telling Abraham, this, this is going to happen because I'm going to die for it. That's what this means. These animals were a symbol of death of the consequence of, I shouldn't, I, in other words, I shouldn't give any of this to you because you're guilty. You should be like one of these animals. But I'm going to put you to sleep, and I'm going to go through this by myself, which means I'm going to take your death for you. Well, how does, how does God do that for Abraham? How does he do it for us? Well, friends, let me introduce you to the better sacrifice, Jesus Christ. He took our death for us. God went through the valley of the shadow of death on our behalf and we were asleep safely on the side so we would never have to go through it isn't that fantastic you see Abraham God is, God is saying to Abraham Abraham this is going to happen because my blood is going to pay for it I'm going to die for you to make sure that everything that is mine is yours he's paying for an enemy, for a sinner, to have entrance into his kingdom, to be adopted as his son, and to be delighted in forever and ever and ever. And friends, that's the call of the gospel. And it goes out to each and every one of us this morning. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord for what you've done for us. We thank you, God, that the whole Bible is about this. We thank you in the Gospel of Matthew. We read this amazing text. For any of us who might, be, might have been following this series and been reading Genesis, we read this amazing text that almost kind of mirrors what Genesis says. This is the genealogy of Jesus, 
the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. The seed. God, we thank you for our King Jesus, the seed. Your promised blessing. God, that you sealed your promise. You assure us of your promise with the death of your son, Jesus Christ. That you pass through the penalty of death for us, what we deserved. You pass through it. You pass through those pieces for us so we would never have to. So the, on the other side of our death is life. God, we pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that they would come to know you, that they would put down whatever they're holding in their hands, turn from the Ur of the Chaldeans, and trust in your word. God, we thank you that you're the seed, you're the promised blessing. And friends, this morning, believe in him, and it will be credited to you as righteousness. All your sins will be removed, and you are promised a forever seat in God's eternal kingdom. He loves you. Trust in him. God, we come to you by faith, and anyone who doesn't come, hasn't come to you that wants to, just cry out to God in the silence of your own heart, God, save me, a sinner. God, I need to turn from this, this, this city that I've been seeking. I need to turn to you and trust in you to cleanse me, to purify me, to stand me up, and to give me a hope that one day I'll be done turning these widgets and I'll be in your glorious presence. Friends, if you've trusted in Christ, you're saved. Your sins are gone forever, and you're his. We love you, God. We thank you for these things and ask now that you bless our time that we spend in our communion. In Jesus' name, amen.